Thank you, guys. Thank you very much. I'm so grateful for our worship team in so many ways, on so many levels. They were here on Thursday and sharing. In fact, that was one of the songs that we sang at the funeral. And um, the place, we had a lot more chairs and it was full on Thursday. Maybe 200 teenagers are very close here in the gospel. And these guys singing when not many people were singing and singing with all of their hearts. And I just appreciate that. Well, there are several things I I want to mention as quickly as I can. Uh, First of all, if you participated in any way in that office space uh, in there, if you haven't been in my new office, you should go and see it. Allison was over here last Saturday uh, Stacy and Chris and Julie and a whole bunch of people I think were here and Allison said you're not going to believe your office and she kept saying that and I, I, I said finally I said what exactly can you do with that office well go in there and see you you will see someone said yesterday and, and that's why you're not an interior designer because you would ask a question like that. But it's beautiful. Thank you so much, all of you who had something to do with that. What a, what a blessing it is to the church. Jenny Peterson said we would all like counseling sessions, but you don't have to be there. We'll just uh, hang around in the office. Thank you. And then I also want to reiterate a couple things that David said this morning. First, uh, Mike Rader in two weeks will be here from Australia. He's British originally, but lives in Australia and is the head of a, uh, a Bible ministry that he began, actually, that trains preachers. There is some theological training in Australia that every preacher, uh, every gospel-minded preacher knows about, just about. When I, when I say the name Peter O'Brien, that may not mean anything to you. It means a great deal to, to pastors who... Love the word. He's a, actually a f- good friend of Allison's, uh, P- Peter O'Brien. Mike Rader was also a friend of Allison. They, Mike and Peter served together at Moore Theological Bible College, which is like a seminary for us in Sydney, Australia. But Mike's concern was that there weren't very many, uh, there wasn't a, a, enough training for good preachers. And I, I've mentioned this before, but I have seen the difference in Australia that good preaching makes as I look at the churches. Uh, when there is good preaching, people are attracted. They want to hear about Jesus. So um, if at all possible, get back from wherever you're going uh, for Thanksgiving on that Sunday morning, two weeks from today, and I can assure you, you will be blessed. Um, uh, David was talking about the new church plan and some of the things that, and how all the churches in the area benefit. Another thing that we've, come across as we've sort of thought about new churches is that much if not most growth in churches by profession of faith in Jesus Christ comes from new churches comes in new churches and that ought to be a challenge to us today the plan was to be in Mark chapter 6 and the place where Jesus sent the disciples out but because of the week and it's the Lord's leading. We're in Psalm 139. We'll, we'll get back to the Gospel of Mark after um, Advent season is over. But, but I was really excited about preaching that message from Mark 6 about Jesus sending his disciples out to proclaim the good news of the kingdom 
It ought to be a challenge to us that most growth by profession comes from brand new churches. We ought to be challenged to share the gospel. We're relatively new, but we're not brand new. So let us not be complacent keeping this good news to ourselves, but giving it out and pray for Anthem Church as they are doing a great deal of that work of evangelism in Anger. Um, One last word I want to say. Every so often we have discovery lunch here at Grace where uh, the elders and some of the deacons are, 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 are here with us. And, and if you're brand new to the church, you come and we have lunch together. And you get to, we get to know you. You get to know us. We ask a lot of questions of each other. Why don't we, we sort of have an impromptu discovery lunch next week? If you're new to Grace and you want to know more about it, we're having the hanging of the greens. And we're going to have some chili. And, and, and I'm not sure if we're, I don't think we're having baked potatoes, but it'll be good. It, it's wonderful. The chili that the ladies make and some of the guys make in this church is really, really good. So be here next week. Elders, let me encourage as many as you as possible, many of you as possible to be here. And we'll just sort of make it an impromptu discovery lunch. Then if you're brand new, we will ask you to do the majority, if not all of the work, hang in the greens. Um, and but we'll be there for support and encouragement. I, I suppose one of the greatest fears that every one of us has is that we'll be alone in life. That we'll end up alone. I kept thinking this past Thursday, you know, with Casey's body right here in front of us about the loneliest moment of my life was when I followed the casket of my wife out of the church. It was the loneliest moment of my life. God has so graciously brought one to me that fills that place of need in my life. But we all are afraid of being lonely. Maybe you haven't identified that fear in your heart and mind. But possibly it's because you've never been put in the position. That. You think that you might truly be alone. And especially be alone. Suddenly. I. um, Said. This week, how well it was profound, but it's not there. It'll come back to me. Something that I talk about with people who are going through loss. And it's difficult to anticipate loss when we have so many friends and family that are surrounding us. We just thinking, okay, well, it's going to happen, but it's always later. Oh, I I now remember what I was going to say. In America, we anticipate everything to go well. And when it goes badly, we're so shocked. We're so surprised. We're so hurt. Now, are you guys just getting back from the Philippines? We were so, I was so, our staff was so concerned about you guys. Were you close to the typhoon?
Well, for once, I'm glad you came in late, uh, Josh. I, uh, Josh is the member of the uh, the same member that all of you are of that club, you know, kind of last minute club. No, I'm just kidding. He's, but I'm very glad he came in. I was glad to say it was a relief to see the Tates today. And look, talk to them about what's going on in the Philippines. They were there. And um, so they can give you a firsthand report, at least um, a firsthand country report. And, and, and again, I, I'm, I'm going to guess, I'm going to assume that the, that, the, that the spirit in the Philippines is different than it would be here. It's tragic. It's horrible. But people in, in, in many other countries don't expect life to go as nicely as we expect it to go here. And so consequently, they can tend to be fatalistic. We're anything but fatalistic. And when life goes badly, it, is, it just overwhelms and destroys us. And so what we try to do is to put that aside. Let's don't think about that. Let's don't think about the bad things until we're forced to. And probably I'm not going to be forced to. And so possibly you've never really thought about what it would be like to be alone in the world. Now, you may be thinking, Pastor, you, you misunderstand. There's nothing that I would like better than to leave this world that I know behind. I am so tired of the, of the squabbling in my family, and I'm so tired of the relationships that inevitably get destroyed, and I'm just weary of it, and I'd like to be alone. But it could be that you think such things from a position of security. I mean, if you were alone, if you were utterly alone, you might not be so quick to say, good, I'm finally glad that I'm in this place. You might be for a while, but you wouldn't stay there. Into the Wild is John Krakauer's fascinating true life account of Chris McCandless, who was an excellent student at Emory University in the early 90s. And he he just had this desire, he said, I'm just so, as, as young people especially are wont to do, he just said, I'm, I'm just tired of all of this. There's so much hypocrisy and I'm just, I, I don't like life the way it is and I just want to travel. I don't know if it was his goal to end up in Alaska. That's where he ended up. He, somewhere along the journey, he wanted to be in Alaska. And he left just out of the blue. He had $24,000 in a college fund and he, and he just gave it all away and he hit the road. Gave his car away, hit the road, leaving behind all of the people he knew and all those who loved him. And he reached his goal. He got to the wilderness of Alaska and he found an old bus. And he lived in that bus and he was living the life. And then the winter came and the and he started saying, you know, I need to get out of here. This is not, as, this is not all I thought it was going to be. And um, after the winter, of course, the snows melted and the rivers rose. And he couldn't get out the way that he had come in. And he ended up being trapped. And he starved to death. Chris kept a journal and one of his last entries said, happiness is only real when shared. We are not designed to be alone, and yet we all find ourselves alone at some point or another. 
At least it feels that way. Maybe we've removed ourselves from others. Or maybe they have walked away from us. Or maybe, like this week, someone very precious to us was taken away from us. At some point, we all feel alone in the universe. You can feel the most alone when you're in the the biggest crowd of people. Or when you're in a great family. Something is just not right, and we can all feel alone, but we're not. Your present experience in life may include a lot of people, but you may still feel alone. I mean, perhaps you feel that they're taking you for granted. Like there's a great deal that you want to share with them, but nobody is interested. You know what it's like, don't you? We all have those people in our lives where you're talking and and they're kind of, they're in a zone somewhere. It's not your zone. I mean, they're, they're out somewhere else. And that's a lonely place for sure. But I want you to be encouraged this morning. You are not alone. Your creator not only knows you perfectly, but he is always with you. Your creator and redeemer is always there for you. What, is, what exactly does God know about us? Everything. Everything. Should God's complete knowledge of us be a cause of fear or a cause of comfort? Both. It should be both. That's what we're going to find in Psalm 139, which is our text today. In fact, Derek Kidner says this about Psalm 139. Any small thoughts we may have of God are magnificently transcended by this psalm. Yet, for all its height and depth, it remains intensely personal from first to last. The psalm was written by King David. It was given to the choir master. It's worthy to be sung by the best musicians in the land. Indeed, in this song, we see all the magnificent and transcendence, the holiness and the greatness of God. But there's a gentle, tender intimacy to the entire song. This morning, we're going to explore our relationship with God, who sees and knows everything that there is to know about us, and yet He loves us tenderly. In fact, we're going to be encouraged to recognize that God created us just as we are for his purposes. And his purposes were made before the world was ever formed. We're that big of a deal to him. When we read this psalm with a view toward repentance And becoming more like him, we glorify the Lord. Would you please stand as we read this entire psalm together. Psalm 139. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. 
Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall, where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you were there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you were there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall your hand lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day. For darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you. For I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was made in secret. Intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me. When as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do not I hate those who hate you, O Lord, and do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Bet you didn't expect that part. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Father, that's the desire of our hearts for this to be the desire of our hearts. We typically desire to know, to want to know the way that we want to know and for life to just fall in place for us. Thank you, Father, that you know us and in spite of that, you love us deeply Minister to our hearts this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. Why, why would King David want to be known by a holy God? I mean, why would any of us want to be utterly, completely known by the one who's, who is so holy that his standard for us having a relationship with him is unattainable by any. Why would we want God to know us at that level? Well, David doesn't begin this psalm with a desire to be known by God this way, but simply an acknowledgement that he is known by God this way, that he is known by Yahweh. Now, Yahweh, right off the bat, Yahweh is a clue that things are going to be okay. Even though God knows us. Yahweh is the covenant name that God used with his people. Or the name that God used when he was dealing with his covenant people. 
It was a tender relationship that he had, although he was also willing to discipline his children. But why would we want to be known like that? Well, it doesn't matter whether we want to or not. We are. By the way, we know the Lord here, Yahweh. Whenever you see capital L-O-R-D, it's almost always, well, it is. It's, it, it, it's, it's indicating the name Yahweh in the Old Testament. Um, we know Yahweh as Father, Son, and Spirit. In fact, Yahweh is translated in the Greek, translated to Greek. It's kurios, which we translate in English to Lord. And in the New Testament, when the title Lord is used for God, it almost always refers specifically to Jesus. Now, I can go into more detail about that and talk about Septuagint and all of, all of that. But see, the writers of the New Testament understood as they were led by the Holy Spirit that when Yahweh's name was given, it was pointing to Jesus and that we would have this intimate relationship with Him that was previously unknown. In fact, we could, from our understanding and perspective, we could read this, Jesus, you have searched me. And know me. Think about what is implied in David's statement. I mean, I, th- I think we'd all agree that God knows everything about us. Our lips would say that we recognize that God is present with us everywhere and that He knows everything. But I wonder if our lives second the motion. I mean, when it comes to being known, we generally, and known by other people, we generally fall into one of three categories. We, some people want others to know everything about them, good and bad. You, you know people like that. I mean, they just tell you everything. Maybe, maybe this is kind of one of those attempts at like, well, let me show you exactly who I am and see if you still love me. Any recently married young men? You ever seen? No, I'm just, I shouldn't say it. It goes both ways. Um, On the other hand, some people don't want you to know much of anything about them. I mean, they keep their activities, their attitudes, their emotions as much to themselves as possible. Those are two extremes. Most of us fall in a a third category where we want to project a certain image of ourselves to other people. We don't want people to know who we really are. We hide our weaknesses unless revealing those weaknesses will make us appear to be humble and spiritual. We accentuate our strengths, though though we do our best not to be arrogant. As for our sins, well, look, we we just would soon you not know anything at all about our sins. The problem with such image projecting is that sooner or later we begin to believe the image that we're trying to project to others. We we believe that this is who we really are. I mean, I'm the real deal here. What's wrong with you? When we're not accountable to anyone about our private lives, we can get into some serious trouble. That's why this psalm is so very important. It helps us remember that nothing in our lives is ultimately private. 
We sense David's full awareness of this in verse 1. God knows everything. He knows everything about me. Verse 2, you know when I sit down to rest and think, and you know when I rise up for action. Even though I may project a less than honest image to other people, God knows Everything about my motives, my heart, my spirit. He separates my desires and intentions from reality. About 20 years ago, you would hear people say, I I just want you to know the real me. Well, make no mistake, God knows the real real you. Verse 3, the Hebrew word for search implies a sifting, a very thorough examination of our ways, which completes the... The thought of verse 2. And though we may stray from God's path. He never leaves ours. He knows everything that we do. More than that verse 4 informs us. That before we even speak. God knows what we're going to say. You ever been talking with somebody. And they say something and you say. I knew you were going to say that. I knew you were going to say that. Or maybe you say. Wow. I didn't expect you to say that. Or. I didn't know you felt that way. It's kind of like it just comes pouring out and it's like, whoa. Well, God is never surprised about what's inside of us and he's never wrong. How well does he know us? He knows everything that we're going to say and do eight years from now, 50 years from now. We may have the best of intentions about our speech and actions, but God knows who we are. Even as David speaks of God's penetrating knowledge of us, there is comfort in the mix. Verse 5 tells us of the way that God surrounds us and tenderly cares for us. When David says, you lay your hand upon me, he is speaking of a tender, gentle gesture. This is something that Allison and I have talked about is, is the need for, for human touch. And, and during that time that I was alone, I missed human contact. Now, I wouldn't say, if you want to talk in terms of love languages, that physical touch is one of my languages. But man, when you are without it, it means something to you. Something special. This week, Curtis Edens who was my, 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 my neighbor and good friend for 10 years, kept saying, I just, wa- I just want to get my hands on her. I just want to be able to put my arms around her one more time. He said that over and over again. And, and you know what he's saying. I just want to touch her. That's gone. It's gone forever. Now think about that in the very opposite. What the Lord is saying is this. You lay your hand upon me. You protect me in every way. You hem me in from behind and before. You may feel like you're out there on your own and that and that and the disaster may be about to befall you. But the Lord's hand is tenderly upon you. David is overcome when he considers. 
that a holy God utterly knows him, which cannot be a good thing. Can't be an entirely good thing. Let's put it that way. And yet this perfect and all-powerful God surrounds him and gently lays his hand on him, reassuring David that he cares for him. Maybe the time that we need the most for the Lord to lay his hand on us is the time that we have failed him the worst. That's why David says in verse 6 that understanding all of this is more than he can comprehend. This is not, when he says this is wonderful for me, he's not saying, hey, this is really, this is way cool. He's saying, I, I can't even begin to comprehend this. How God could know me at this level and yet love me the way that he does Can you remember in your life the worst feeling that you ever had disappointing someone else? Where you just feel like, how could I have done that? It's at that moment that the Lord puts his hand on you. Now, there's repentance required. There's a turning to the Lord. I understand all of that. But when we are aware that we are completely revealed and and God knows everything about us. In that moment, (coughs) He lays His hand on us. Because of God's intimate knowledge of man, it appears that David's initial impulse is to flee To get away from God. Where shall I flee from your presence? In heaven God is there. But that's no surprise. (laughs) In Sheol. Or the grave. God is there as well. When we. Listen to this. When we make. A complete and utter mess of things. God is right there. With you. Verse 9 is David's way of saying that God resides as far as the east is from the west, from the rising of the sun to the ends of the Mediterranean Sea. I'm looking south, of course, as I do that. No, I mean, I'm looking north, aren't I? From the rising of the sun to the setting of the sun in the Mediterranean Sea. God is there. In verse 10, David recognizes that God's hand extends to him in love no matter where. He goes. That still doesn't keep David from wanting to hide. But he can't hide from God. Darkness? What darkness? Secrets? What secrets? How can one have secrets from his his or her creator? God was intimately involved in making you just as you are. Now, let me ask you a question. God, let me say that again. God was intimately involved in making you just as you are. Are are you satisfied with how God made you? With the body that you have? With the personality that you have? With the heritage that you have? 
there's no doubt that sin in a fallen world speaks to who we are. But so does God's intimate and intricate design of us in our mother's womb. We're fallen and yet in Christ, in Jesus, when our lives are given over to Him, we are redeemed and we see God's plan from the beginning. Let me ask you for just a moment. Do you believe that, that God is this intimately involved in the life of a fetus or a fetus life? Let's put it that way. How then? How? How? If you believe this is true, how can you say that abortion is acceptable? That it's more important that a mother be able to choose than it is to protect the life of this. What is the difference in this life and any other life? And look, it's not... not, What voting we're doing this year is is, is passed, and not many of us voted this year. I don't talk about politics hardly ever, but I'm telling you, I'm just about as close as you can get to a single-issue voter as you can be, and it's this issue. Would you vote for someone who says, you know, I think after 75, 80 years of old, we need to euthanize our population? I mean, just think of the drain that it is on, on the health care system, which you might be tempted to ask, what health care system uh, at, at present? But, um, but such as it is, you look, the only way I'm voting, the only way I'm ever voting for a pro-choice candidate is if there's no pro-life candidate. In the mix. Why? Because I I believe. That God's eyes saw my unformed substance. And in his book were written every day of my life. Now, now by the way, I, I have to hasten to say this. If you have had an abortion... Oh, I, my heart breaks for you. It is, I am not here to stand in judgment. I think that we get in trouble in our nation when we say certain things are acceptable. We try to justify things that are wrong. We just need to call it what it is. Look, we're all guilt. We all sin. I doubt there's anybody here that would want everything to be known about him or her. Please understand that if you have had an abortion, you know someone, you're close to someone who's had an abortion. Forgiveness is absolutely complete in Jesus. It is absolutely complete in Jesus. But we have to say this going forward, that it's wrong. And if you know someone who is considering an abortion, be gentle, be tender. But do everything you can to come alongside, put your arms around her. And say, let me walk through this with you. Let me go through this. This is a precious life. God's intimate activity in the womb was a part of his ultimate plan for you. 
And in fact, he formed this day, this day, today, especially for you. That should comfort you in the midst of a trial. It it did David. He said, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. The the fact that you took this much care designing me. that That you ordained every one of my days. How vast is the sum of them? I can't comprehend it. And it's, it's not as though I'm dreaming, though. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I am awake and I am still with you. Isn't it the most wonderful thing when you, you know, when you're in love or, or when your team won the Super Bowl or, you know, the family, everything just went perfectly at this particular big shindig that you put on. Everything is just one where you wake up and it wasn't a dream. It's so much greater to wake up and the Lord is still with us. In our hours of need, in our hours when life is good. But even with that knowledge, all is not as it should be in life. There always seems to be some form of trouble in River City, doesn't there? I mean, there are those who oppose God, and David had his troubles with them. Verses 19 to 22 are frankly troublesome for most Christ followers. I mean, how do do you deal with this? Oh, that you would slay the wicked, oh God. Oh, men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do not, I hate those who hate you, oh Lord. And do not I loathe those who rise up against you. I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. I mean, look, aren't we supposed as New Testament believers, as those who are in Christ, aren't we to forgive our enemies and allow God to take vengeance on those who seek to do us harm? Well, yes, we are. But these imprecatory psalms or psalms in which a curse is called down on the enemies of the Lord, serve a purpose that didn't end when Jesus came. There are, are, there's some of this language. It's not written exactly the same way, but there's some of this in the New Testament as well. Get it out of your head that God was one way in the old before Jesus, and he's another way now. He's the same God yesterday, today, forever. Jesus, the same yesterday, today, and forever. He dealt with people differently. But these kinds of verses have their place. How does it all work together? Look, that takes a whole sermon. In fact, I preached one several years ago. And in, and in fact, I'm going to put it along with this, song, this sermon today on the city this week. Now, the city is our web-based connector here at Grace. We, it's the way we stay in touch with one another. And it's the way I first found out when Vicki shared the other night that it was my neighbor who was killed in that awful accident last week. It's where we, we meet one another, where we pray for one another, where we share our needs, where we say, hey, does anybody have this? Anybody have that? I need one of these. Need one of those. Look, if you're not on the city, we'll have somebody in the information booth today after the service. Go back there and, and sign up. And, and, and there's a... There's a whole group of psalms called the imprecatory psalms. 
and, and there are portions of Psalms like in this one that are that are just so wonderful and high in other places. What is the purpose of them? Well, find out when you read about what God was saying in those times, and especially in Psalm 10. David began the psalm with the acknowledgement of God's perfect and complete understanding of every human being. He ends the psalm with the desire for God to make his knowledge of David known to David. In other words, Lord, I'm, I'm sensing all these things about you. Now show me myself. Why? Because David wanted to be more like his creator. And our heart is that we want to be more like Jesus. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And reveal it to me. And lead me in the way everlasting. I want to ask again what I asked at the first of the message. Why would David want to be known by a holy God. Why would any of us want to be utterly known by the one whose standard of holiness is unattainable by any? Certainly, I've got no hope of being the kind of holy that God is in my own strength. Why do I want to be known by a God like that? Well, it's foolish unless we're convinced that God loves us and that He desires To work his purposes in the hearts and the lives of those who are his children. Even though he knows every detail of our lives and even though he is holy and we are not. Why? Why? Well, the answer is in Jesus. When we know God, not only as our creator, but also as our redeemer. His knowledge of us works for our good, no matter how disappointed we may be with ourselves or how embarrassed we might be. Romans 8.1 says that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This, This verse comes at a remarkable place. It comes right at the end of Romans 7. If you know anything about Romans 7... It's the Apostle Paul of all people saying, I, I, I just absolutely disgust myself. I mean, I, I want to live for God and I end up living for myself. And I, the, there are these things over here that I despise that are disgusting to me. These thoughts that come into my head, these things that I want to do. And, and I want to be focused here, but I just keep going back and forth, back and forth. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death, Paul says in Romans 7. And unfortunately, we have a new chapter because there is no chapter in the original writing. He says, I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord, at the end of seven. With my mind, I serve the law of God, but with my flesh, the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Someone asked me the other day, what's your favorite verse in all the Bible? It used to be, actually, it was Allison asked me that. It used to be Philippians 2.13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. The older I am, it's this one. (laughs) There's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. David 
was not blessed with the knowledge that we have of Jesus' perfect sacrifice on our behalf. A sacrifice that absorbed God's judgment of sin for all who will believe. But God's Spirit enabled him to understand God's goodness in creating us, forming us, designing us, knowing us, and revealing our true selves to us. It's tragic when we seek to hide from God's Spirit who reveals our sin to us. It's not that we seek to take the wings of the morning or or go to the uttermost parts of the sea or just run away from God. You know how we run away from God? Noise. Distraction. And you know what it serves to do? It shushes the Spirit. Silence is a discipline, a spiritual discipline that we would do well to incorporate into our lives. When we seek to limit the Spirit's work in our lives, we fail to see our sin in the same light that God sees it. So we justify our sin... And pretends that either he doesn't see it or that he will overlook our sin. I have a friend who used to play hide and seek with his son. And his son would cover his eyes and he says, you can't see me now, daddy. You can't see me. Because he didn't quite get it. And, you know, ha, ha, ha. And yet, that's not what we do. You can't see me, God. You can't see me. I'm making enough noise. Psalm 139 tells us that God knows us completely (laughs) and that he loves us and he cares nonetheless. So maybe you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus as your Savior. Maybe all of your life you have sought to be good. I mean, well, okay, college years, whatever. High school, whatever. But for the most part, you've tried to live in a way that God would say, I'm pleased with you, I'm proud of you, and I'm going to allow you into heaven because you're so good. I mean, look, we all know that you're way better than, you know, two houses down on the other side of the street. Way better. So that's all you need to worry. You're living your life comparing yourselves with others. This is who you've got to compare yourself with, this God who knows everything about you and who is perfect. You have no hope in your own strength. Your only hope is to submit to, when it, to that touch when he lays his hand on you. Not to say, what? I don't. I don't need that. You know, it's like when you say, you know, I'm, I'm going to be praying for you. Well, okay, I guess. You know, if you, that floats your boat, pray for me. But I can handle this on my own. It's kind of the way we do God. Just stay away from me. I don't. Yes, you do need him. You desperately need him. And he made a way. He made a way for you to be cleansed of all 
all of that stuff that he knows about you is forgotten. It's put behind him. When you believe that what Jesus did on the cross was done for your benefit, that he paid the price, the penalty for your sins. He was your substitute. He was the sacrifice who died for you. And to be known by God like this is to say, Oh God, I know who I am. I accept your judgment of me, which is a sinner. And then to turn to the cross and say, But I believe that what Jesus did, you did out of your love for me. You sent him there. And he died in my place. And I believe him. I give my life to him. Have you ever done that? Do not wait. Do not wait. You may not make a home. It's time. Some of you have been thinking about this. It's time for you to make that decision. Let's pray. One forty one. O Lord, I call upon you. Hasten to me. Give ear to my voice when I call you. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you, and the lifting of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Do not let my heart incline to any evil, to busy myself with wicked deeds, in company with men who work iniquity, and let me not eat of their delicacies. But my eyes are toward you, O God, my Lord. In you I seek refuge. Leave me not defenseless. God provides us a defense in Christ Jesus, and I pray that you would seek refuge in him this week.